0: We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 48 this morning. Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. Luke's in the New Testament. It's one of the four Gospels, the four historical firsthand accounts of Jesus' life while he was here on earth. Luke is Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament. So we'll be there this morning. Chapter 19. A lot of history has taken place between last week's message And this week's message, if you've been here at all over any of the last three weeks, you'll know we're doing an all church study across all of our campuses, looking at some familiar or maybe brand new stories from the Bible. Five different stories that are kind of not just historical accounts, but they're your story and my story. We started off with Abraham and Isaac. We talked about Rahab last week. We talked about Daniel and the lion's den. And between the time when Daniel was written and this story takes place, there's a lot of history. This particular story is... Towards the end of Jesus' life on earth. It's the last time that he went to Jerusalem, kind of during the beginning of what we would call the Passion Week, his last life on earth, his last week on earth. And so the story picks up when he comes to Jerusalem um, to begin this week to get ready for Passover, and here is here's what the text says. I'll read you this morning from Luke nineteen verses twenty eight through forty. After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and they found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. In just a moment, we're going to show you um, a short video clip from the mini-series they did on the History Channel called The Bible in which they, they kind of recreate this, this moment for Jesus. They begin with him entering Jerusalem and go up to the time when he he goes into the temple and what he experiences when he goes to the temple to worship. But for it to make most sense to you, um, let me just give you a a quick snapshot of a couple things in the backstory here that'll help you get the most you can out of the video. And then we'll come back and take some application stuff, application statements from it. First of all, Jerusalem, Um, for those of you who may not know, Jerusalem is in the country of Israel. It's actually the capital of Israel. And it, it was at that time and today the religious center for the Jewish people. The particular story we're studying today is the third time the Bible records Jesus going to Jerusalem. Now, there may have been other times that he went to Jerusalem, okay? But this was specifically the third time that they made mention of that he went to Jerusalem in the Bible. So this was extremely important. This is where the temple was. This is where, like, for the Passover, everybody, even the Jews who moved to other towns and other places, they'd all come back to Jerusalem for this particular, for this particular holiday, then the Pharisees. We've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's talk about the Pharisees first. They're kind of um, they're key parts of the story in the Gospels. Um, These guys were Jewish religious leaders who were responsible for teaching the law that God gave to Moses. They were especially important after the destruction of the temple because when they destroyed the temple, they didn't have access to come together um, and study the scriptures anymore. So these guys became very important during that time. They believed in an afterlife. They did believe in life after death. They believed in a Messiah who would come to bring peace. And they also believed that the original law that God gave to Moses, the Ten Commandments, they believed that that was to be... uh, um, interpreted. In other words, they didn't think it was spe- It was literal to the, to the I and to the T. They thought that there was some room for interpretation. So these guys were very important. Understand, and we'll talk about this later, understand the Pharisees, these were not immoral, awful, terrible people. These were people who were revered by the Jews as people who were I guess the closest, closest equivalent today where they were kind of viewed as like the pastors, the teachers, the, the main leaders in the church. They knew the Old Testament inside and out. They were teaching people to live the life that God called them to live through Moses. That's what their role was. But then you had this other group of people who kind of worked alongside the Pharisees, though they didn't agree on everything, called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were also religious teachers of Jesus' day, but they, they were different from the Pharisees in their theology a little bit. The Pharisees believed in life after death. The Sadducees did not. They believed that life ended when you breathe your last breath. That was it. That's why some people, when I was in Sunday school, they'd say, "That's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe that there was." Uh, yeah, <laughs> there you go. I didn't think that that would get a laugh, but there it is. Um, <laughs> But uh yeah they they didn't believe they didn't believe in life after death they didn't they also believed that the law that god gave moses was to be taken literally that there was no room for interpretation whatever whatever it said they were to do exactly and precisely Together with the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Pharisees together formed a two-party uh, Jewish Supreme Court, so to speak, called the Sanhedrin. And if you read through the rest of the story into Jesus' crucifixion and trial, you'll see that terminology. So you had kind of a two-house legislature here. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we see both of them here in the story. Also the Romans. So you had the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were Jews. These were part of the line of Abraham. These were the people who got originally intended to occupy Israel. But at the time of this story... Um, once again, it seems like the last time we talked about Daniel, the Babylonians were running house and then the Medo-Persian empire came in In this story, the, the Jews weren't in charge of Israel either. either. The Romans were the Rome, The Roman empire was an empire that had risen up and invaded and conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC after a time of great turmoil and turmoil and civil war amongst the Jews. In the time of our story, you have to understand the Jews had different. There's a wide range of public opinion towards Roman occupation because some of the stuff the Romans brought were good things. They brought a lot of technology. They brought a lot of infrastructure that the Jews didn't have. So some of them liked the Romans being there. And so you had some Jews who were as far as like completely uh, peaceful, cooperative support of the Romans. Then you had on the other extreme, you had some Jews that wanted to raise up and kick them out by force, the zealots and others. And you had wide range of opinion in between. But you need to understand at the time of this story, um, the Romans kind of were afraid of the Jews a little bit. They didn't want them to rise up and overthrow them. So there was this kind of tense political, you know, there's some political tension there. The Romans were very much in charge, but didn't want to be too heavily in charge that they upset the Jews who had the numbers on them and they rose up and revolted against them. So you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees who represented the Jews. Then you had the Romans that were there as well. And of course, the temple, which was the center of Israelite worship. That's where they offered sacrifices to God and that's where God's presence resided if you go back in the old testament they didn't have a temple they had more of a mobile temple if you will which was called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting they they set it up that's where god's presence resided that's where the levites offered sacrifices of worship to god so these are all the different key components in the video we're about to see so we read a few verses let's take a look at this video and then we'll come back and just draw a few key statements from that video that we can apply to our lives today you can go ahead and roll that video
1: Passover is the biggest Jewish festival of the year. Thousands come to Jerusalem to thank God for releasing their ancestors from Egyptian slavery. Jesus' entrance creates a storm. The prophet Zechariah predicted that a new king of the Jews would enter the city on a donkey. Is he now? He's just entered the city on a donkey. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. Where's he headed? Towards the temple. This agitator from Galilee. He's trouble. The crowds, how are they responding? Hmm? And the Romans, have they made any move yet? No. Well, so far. He must not interfere with Passover. God will bring his wrath down upon all of us. And who knows what Pilate will do if the crowds run out of control. Nicodemus, go with Malchus. If he enters the temple, watch him. Do not blink. I need to know everything. Go. The temple is the holiest place in the Bible. During festival times, selling sacrificial animals and changing money has become a thriving business. written my house my house shall be called the house of prayer but you you have made it a den of thieves who are you to tell us this we teach the law not you. You pray lofty prayers and love your shows of piety in the temple. Hypocrites, you cannot serve God and money.
0: To talk about here, there there are a lot of different things to pull out. We're going to move through some of these statements pretty efficiently because of time today. But it's always interesting when you take what you've already imagined the story to look like when you read it, and then look at what someone else puts it visually in front of you. I do I, I love how they capture. I think the the offendedness, that the grief that Jesus feels over this place of worship that's been turned into so many other things. I think that that really accurately captures what I think the writers wanted to capture in the Gospels when they wrote about that story. But let's just see, you know, sometimes it's tough to jump 2,000 years ahead and take application from the story, but I believe there's a few things here that you and I can learn from what we just read and what we're, we're thinking about and talking about here that we can put into place in our lives. Number one, um, many people expect Jesus to be somebody other than who he actually is. Many people, and maybe sometimes you and I too are part of those many people, many people expect Jesus to be somebody other than who he really is. We see that very much in the Passion Week of Jesus, where over the course of less than two weeks, the same people who were cheering him on when he arrived hated him so much towards the end of the week. The same people that lined the streets that were saying Hosanna were the people spitting on him on the way to the cross. What happened? Well, they found out that he was somebody other than who they expected him to be here's what the bible says luke chapter 19 let me read it to you again the people said blessings on the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven but just a few verses later jesus already lets us in on the fact that he thinks that people are missing his true identity he says this jesus said as he came closer to jerusalem he saw the city set ahead and he began to weep He said how i wish today that you of all people speaking about jerusalem would understand the way to peace but now it's too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They'll crush you to the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not accept your opportunity for salvation. Jesus already recognized that the people didn't really, they didn't totally get who he was. And I will tell you that, that one thing you'll discover to be true in life is when people don't match up to your expectations you have for them, you'll start distancing yourself from them when an employer doesn't match up to what you expect, when a friend doesn't live up to the expectations, when a hero or a movie star or a celebrity that you really admire, you have this personal encounter with them and they don't match up to what you think, you start to distance yourself from them. you also find that when people, when you no longer meet people's expectations of you, they'll find they don't have much of a use for you anymore either. Everybody's gonna have an agenda for you. Everybody's got something they want you to be. Something that they look forward to. Your employer, if you have one, does. Dr. Joe mentioned earlier he has patients. They have expectations of Dr. Joe. They have certain level of expectation they want from their doctor. And what happens is when we don't meet people's expectations, realistic or unrealistic, you'll find a distancing. The human heart doesn't do well when it's disappointed by things not matching its expectations. Let's be a little more specific. What were the Jews really expecting Jesus to be? Letter A, the Jews expected Jesus to be a temporary solution to their problems. That's what the people wanted. They talked about Messiah. You heard it in the video. You'll read it in the Bible. Blessed is he who comes. The Old Testament said, you're Messiah. You'll recognize him. What should we look for? He'll be the guy that comes to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Well, here he comes, just like the Bible says. But you know, they expected something different from a Messiah than you and I might think 2,000 years later. Messiah meant three things to them. He would be a prince he would make war with the Romans and he would restore the Jews to their lost nationality. They weren't necessarily looking for someone to save them from their sins. They weren't looking for someone who would die on the cross. As a matter of fact, they rejected him as Messiah when he hung on a tree. Because in the Old Testament, it said, cursed is the man hung on the tree. So the moment they put Jesus on the cross, everybody was sure this is definitely not the Messiah. They were looking for someone like Jesus who would have popular opinion on their side who could somehow with their charisma rally the troops and militarily overthrow the romans install himself as king and return return the jews to their lost nationality that's what they wanted jesus to do but did jesus come with a military no Did Jesus come in and immediately start running roughshod, kicking people out of political office and putting his disciples in place? No. They discovered very quickly after he arrived that he was not the temporary solution to their immediate problem. He was very much the Messiah. But his short-term goal was not to kick the bad guys out of office. His short-term goal was to come and seek and save that which was lost and to be a sacrifice for sin forever. And when these very same people who cried Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, when they found out that this guy they loved was not who they thought he was, they hated him as much as they loved him. They hated him as much as they loved him. Unfortunately, when they discovered that Jesus wasn't simply an all-powerful genie in a bottle, they turned on him and severely. Here in Luke, we have this stirring account of people crying out Hosanna to Jesus. Jesus knew he faced a choice. He either faced death from the very same people who he would disappoint, or he could acquiesce to their wishes and say, okay, I guess I'll just let them install me as king. Because if you read through the story before this, read through the beginning of Jesus' life, you know, there were several times in the Bible that people tried. The Bible says the people were going to come and take him and make him king, install him by force, and he went and hid so that it wouldn't happen. I wonder how you and I handle it when Jesus disappoints us. Well, Pastor, Jesus never disappoints me. Well, maybe not, but be honest. Sometimes we have expectations of Jesus he never promises. And when he doesn't deliver on who we think he should be, we get disappointed. Can I tell you, Jesus is not who you think he should be? Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is not the projection that you and I put on him. I run into this all the time with people who walk away from Christianity and from church so disappointed because it didn't match their expectations. But let's drill down what are your expectations? Let me ask you this morning, let me ask you, what are your expectations? Letter B, Jesus didn't come simply to give people what they want. He came to set sinners free. Jesus didn't come to be this, like I said, the genie in the bottle. He just pops up and say, I'm your king and your God. I'm all powerful. I'll do anything you want. Just ask me and I'll give you what you want. Because here's the deal, guys. As Christians, we generally get what we want most. Generally, not always. But you and I generally in life, we're bent to go after what we want most. And that might be a different answer for all of us. But Jesus made it very clear from the get-go. He wasn't there to just give the Jews what they wanted. He was there to set sinners free. He says it all through, through uh, Luke chapter 4 when he started preaching. He read from the Old Testament. He read this verse that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the power of the Lord's favor has come. Then he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and sits down. Everybody's looking at him. And he says, Today in your ears this scripture is fulfilled. He said, Here's what I'm to do. I'm not here to be your king. I'm not here to, 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 to topple the government. I'm here to preach the gospel of the good news. I'm here to set oppressed people free. I'm here to heal people, to open blind eyes. Later on, he says in Luke chapter 5, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law complained to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? They were really upset that Jesus wasn't hanging out with the religious elite. He was hanging out with the sinners. He was hanging out with the people who needed a savior. And Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. Luke chapter 19, he says, the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus was straight up about his mission. He didn't divert to the left or right. And I want to tell you something. What is your mission this morning? What do you think your mission is? Do you know what God's put you on the earth for? If you don't, can I encourage you to press in and find out what it is and then beg you not to divert to the left or to the right, even one inch. Because people will always try and tug you to the left or right, even for good things. Jesus had, you know what? He had people who surrounded him and said, we will raise up. We'll be your military. We'll put you in place. We'll make you king. Let's not ask, act like that's this unappealing thought to a lot of us. You got public opinion on your side who want to promote you and push you up to the highest office in your career field. Jesus didn't acquiesce to that. He stayed faithful, saying, I'm here to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm here to preach the gospel. I'm not here to be a king. I'm not here to be this huge uh, political figure. I am here to be a sacrifice, to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come to give us what we want, people. And salvation is not you coming to Jesus to fix all your problems. Because you'll be grossly disappointed because you'll find after salvation, you still got problems. But you know how many people walk away from Jesus because they thought that salvation meant all our problems get fixed. And after a day, they find out it didn't work and they walk away. It's not about goosebumps every moment of every day. It's about having a relationship with the God of all the universe who changes us from the inside out and transforms our heart. That's what it's about. It's about knowing the joy of the intimacy of the f- It's about being inseparable with God Almighty. That's the main thing. That's what it's all about. And that's what Jesus came to make possible. So let me ask you this. What do you expect of this Jesus? What do you expect? It's An important probing question that I'm not going to answer for you this morning. That's for you to answer. What do you expect? Because we find what happens. You know what happens when people's expectations for Jesus aren't met? They turn on him severely. Don't let us think it couldn't happen to us, too. What do you expect from Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus when he fails to deliver what you expect of him? When you expect him to spare you from the lions, then, and into the lions you go. When you expect him to have all your bills paid by the end of the month, and the end of the month comes and and you still have needs. When you pray and pray and pray and pray for your miracle, and you stand on every verse you know, and things even get worse before they get better. Or they don't get better at all. When you ask him to spare someone from death who he takes home that you didn't expect. When bad things happen to good people, when you're treated unfairly and unjustly, and even when you do the right thing, you're hung on a cross for it. Do you think your expectations of Jesus are reasonable? Is it possible you expect Jesus to be somebody other than who he says that he is? Quick story. I I, I always try and get to the root of this in the South. We do things a little bit different at the end of. At the end of church, I spent 10 years as a pastor in the state of Georgia, five years in near Atlanta, five years closer to the Alabama-Georgia line. And at the end of our services down there, when we encourage people to make a decision to follow Jesus, we have these things called altar calls. And we ask people to raise their hand and get up from their seat and come down front, and the whole church claps for you. We pray with you, and then we move you into a little side room, and we talk to you for about 10 minutes about starting your new relationship with Jesus. And what I discovered in this church I was in for five years is that I'd start seeing some of the same customers multiple times. You know, I'd see. You know, I'd, I'd see. I'll just call him Bobby. I'd see Bobby coming to church. He'd raise his hand. He'd come to the altar. He'd pray to have Jesus come into his heart. And Bobby and I would talk in the side room. And then I'd call him, visit him, email him. Couldn't find him. He'd fall off the face of the earth for six months. And then, sure enough, about six months later, he'd show up at church. We'd give an invitation for salvation. He'd raise his hand. He'd come to the altar. He'd pray the prayer. He'd go in the room. We'd talk again. And never see him for six months. Finally, the third time I had Bobby show up at church and he came to the altar, we went in the side room and it was my turn to, to go meet with the people who prayed that prayer that morning. And, and after I dismissed everybody else, I said, Bobby, hold on a second, let me ask you a question. Did you mean what you prayed the very first time that we prayed and you invited Jesus into your life? He you said, yes, sir, I sure did. And the second time, yes, sir, I, sh- I sure did. And today, yes, sir, I sure did. And why do you keep walking away and coming back? Why do you think he's like, well, here's what I he's like. Well, I figured it. You know, I've got such a I got all these addictions and hangups in my life. I've got problems at work. I got all kinds of issues. And and I just you know, I know that when we get saved, God fixes all of those things. He said, so I figured the first time when I came down front that that was all going to change. And I found out the next day when I went back to work and I was let go, maybe that maybe it didn't take. Maybe I didn't really get saved. So I waited another couple months and things got even worse. I came to church, I prayed again and I went home and then my relationships fell apart. So I figured something still must not have worked. So I figured at least the third time, this will really, you know what, here's a guy who had unrealistic expectations for what Jesus was supposed to do in his life. He thought the moment he prayed that prayer, that life was just going to be smooth, peaceful. Friend, let me tell you something. If you follow Jesus, you're going to have trouble. The Bible says so. If you don't follow Jesus, you're going to have trouble. The Bible says so. Trouble is going to be ahead of us. Your choice is whether you want to go through life with a person who stands above all trouble or whether you want to do it on your own. I would much rather face life's difficulties with my Savior, but sometimes we have unrealistic expectations is what the people had, and they turned on Jesus. But number two, Jesus came to set up his kingdom his way. They didn't have it totally wrong. He absolutely came to show us that he was a king, but he was a king long before he came. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He stands above everything. But Jesus is wanting to be very specific. He's not coming to set up his kingdom your way or my way. Jesus came to set up his kingdom his way. Here's what he says in John chapter 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it was, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. My kingdom is not of this world. Let's be completely clear. Jesus absolutely came to earth to set up a kingdom. Jesus did not set up a democracy. Hello? You and I don't get a vote in this. And we won't ever be shut down. and We won't have to go and have all these... You know, That's not going to happen in God's kingdom. He set up a kingdom. And it's tough for us who have grown up in this country or who are familiar with our way of government He's not a president. He is a king. He's not an elected official that you and I get to vote in or out of office. He doesn't campaign. He is the king. He stands alone. He has no colleagues. He has no boss. He is the king of kings. He came to set it up his way. But his kingdom is very, very strange. It's very different from any kingdom that you and I could study on this earth. Let's look at three of the defining characteristics of Jesus' kingdom we see in this story. There's more than this. Let me tell you a couple things that are different about Jesus' kingdom that you and I can apply our, to our lives. Letter A, this kingdom that Jesus has is a kingdom where disciples get to hold the highest offices. Let me ask you something. You saw it in the video. We've read the story. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the king, he arrives to set up his kingdom. Who's in his entourage? Disciples. Disciples. What did they do for a living? Most of them. Common fishermen. You had some other occupations in there. You had some philosophers. You had some zealots. You had some thinkers. You had some tax collectors. You had no armed guards. You had no military people. You had no swords. You had no spears. You had no armor. You had common people in his entourage. I don't know if you've ever been near the president when he has made an entrance. If you were ever trying to enter a baseball game or if you've ever had occasion to be where our president is, let me tell you, the man has an entourage of some pretty serious dudes, man. Have you seen, have you seen on uh, like, like over the last couple of years when they have the inaugural celebration and the president gets out of the big, huge armored car, which they call the beast that has all, the, which is not the antichrist. It's just what they call the car. <laughs> I just have to say that and get everybody all nervous and upset. But, um, you know, they've got this big, huge armored car that our president travels around in. He's got multiple airplanes at his disposal. He's got heavily armed dudes. You've got... You've got entire specials on cable television devoted to the technology they use to protect our president. That's who surrounds him. You want a cabinet job? Friend, you better know somebody. You better have some experience. This king, this king Jesus, doesn't do things that way. In his kingdom, there is no prince in waiting. There is no sergeant at arms. There is no head of security. There is no cabinet. It's disciples. The people who sit at his feet who get to be right in his ear, who get to be right by his right hand and his left hand. Just disciples. Are you a disciple? I'm not asking if you're a Christian. I'm asking if you're a disciple. Ask 10 different people to define a Christian, you'll get 10 different answers. But I think we all could agree on what a disciple is. A disciple is a fully committed follower of Jesus. Do you understand the profound opportunity that awaits us in this kingdom? You might think you're nobody. You might not have the education or the wealth or the job title or the position. You might not have all the gifts that somebody else has. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you can hold the highest office in his kingdom. That's the difference here. It is accessible to people like you and me. And it's the amazing thing about Jesus. The people who thought they were somebody and they were entitled and that they deserved because of who they were, he pushed away. But the people who knew they were nobody that were content to have a crumb for the master's table, he drew right by his side. The poorest of the poor could come. And so could the educated, except the educated had a hard time being around Jesus because they thought they didn't need him because of all they knew. Food for thought. Let me tell you something else that's different about his kingdom. It's a kingdom where the laws aren't written on paper. Well, pastor, the Bible is written on paper and there's a bunch of laws in there. True, true. But let me defend this statement just a little bit. Let me read you from Romans chapter two, verse 14 and 15. Even Gentiles who don't have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they're doing right. Here's what that means. In Jesus' kingdom, we don't have to communicate his law only by word of mouth or have it in big, thick, dusty law books. What it means is that when you and I begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and we receive his spirit into our life, we receive something internally in our heart that helps us know right and wrong, even if we haven't read the verse that tells us what it is yet. When Jesus sent his disciples to go use eminent domain and take the colt that didn't belong, do did you read the beginning of the story? It's kind of strange, isn't it? Jesus says, hey, go. I know there's a guy down the road. He's going to have a colt tied up against a tree that no one's ever ridden before. Just go take him and bring him to me. And if they ask you why you're taking it, just say the master needs it. He didn't send them with a scroll, with a seal and a law and say, when you go in there, you show them the law that the king has. He just said, just tell them that this is what you want to do. And in their heart, they'll know what's right to do and they'll do it. And when the disciples go and they get the colt, sure enough, the owners say, well, where are you taking that? They say the masters needs it. OK. And with joy, they release it to the master because it was already written on their hearts. You know what I want for my son? I don't want my son to I, I want to help him know right from wrong. And I want to parent him very much the same way that God parents me. I recognize when my son came in the world, he did not instinctively know all right from all wrong. He learns very quickly that usually he bends things towards what he wants and what he thinks is best for him. And the challenge is for Kendra and I to lovingly but firmly help program him a little bit. I know that those are troubling words, but you know, work with me here, you know. <laughs> we want to assist him through discipline, through affirmation, through correction to help him know right from wrong. But you know what my goal is? By the time that he's twenty five, I don't want to have to be doing this every day. I hope that over time, even if there isn't a rule for it, sometimes he'll just instinctively know the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do because he's spent enough time with Dad and Mom that he knows our heart. And even if we haven't made rule number 37B that covers it, he knows what to do. Wouldn't it be nice if the way that we can follow God doesn't depend so much on us having to memorize the six or 700 laws in Scripture? But to be able to say, I always know that those are there to help shape me and guide me when I need. I can always go back to dad and say, what is the rule on this? But to have such a, a relationship with God where his law for his kingdom doesn't have to be written down on paper in a dusty law book somewhere, but it's written on the very conscience of our heart that all of his followers can follow him, even if they can't absorb all those different rules in their mind. Let us see another difference, and the final difference we'll talk about today. It's a kingdom where wealth buys no influence and taxes are never collected. Uh, somebody's excited about that. <laughs> Even if we can't figure out how to spend the taxes that are collected, you know, they're just not collected. The disciples simply replied this, The Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their garments over it for him to ride on, and as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. So let me ask you something. Here comes the king to Jerusalem. If you were God up in heaven and you could and you could author in panoramic view and storyboard your son the king's entrance to the capital city, wouldn't you have some trumpets? Some red carpet? Some paparazzi. Once you have the camera flashes. Let me ask you, on, on what vehicle is the king riding? A donkey, a borrowed donkey. He doesn't even own it. He's not even sitting on a saddle. He's sitting on borrowed garments that were probably threadbare and dirty as they were. You know what he's saying? He's saying you don't have to be a person of wealth. To be part of this kingdom here comes this king so accessible to you and me doesn't even have doesn't even have his own vehicle borrows it from somebody. And this is the king sitting not on a saddle that was prepared for him, but sitting on borrowed garments. He doesn't have trumpeters and people coming alongside him that other kings of the day did. He just has people who spontaneously start singing songs they never rehearsed. Probably not a three part harmony with a drummer. It just didn't happen. (laughs) What's he saying to us by coming in this way? He's saying you don't have to be a person of substance to have place in this kingdom. You can have your substance so long as I've always said this, have your money as long as it doesn't have you. You can have your things, you can have your stuff, but it's not a prereq to be part of this kingdom. If you just want to be close to the king and you want to follow him, you have access. You have access to the king of kings and lord of lords. The other thing I see here, he didn't collect any taxes. Now, here's the reality. People say, well, Jesus didn't have any money. I bet he did have money. He had a treasurer. He kept 12 people on payroll for three years and they managed to eat. Now, he didn't have hotel rooms. He didn't have a mattress. He didn't have a pillow. He didn't have a house. Didn't own real estate. But somehow, some way, money came in. Well, how? I guess people just gave to him because they wanted to. He didn't collect taxes. But apparently, there were always people around Jesus who loved him enough to just give to him because they loved him. Jesus, whatever you need, if I have it, I'll give it to you. Friend, I want you to understand something. Jesus doesn't look at our tithes and our offerings and things as taxes that he just mindlessly collects. Jesus always welcomes those of us. Look at the people, what they gave to him. Some of them gave him their garments, not because he asked them to. They just gave their garments. The ones who didn't have garments to give broke off branches of low-hanging trees and gave those and waved those. You know why? Because they loved him. They loved him. Friend, this is a kingdom. That has, you know what? You know the resources that this kingdom has? Cattle on a thousand hills pale in comparison to resources. The Bible says he'll strengthen you according to his riches and glory. He's rich. He is wealthy. He's not after our taxes. He's after our heart. But the problem is most of our wealth is wrapped all around our heart. And when we begin to release the things that were closest to our heart and give them willingly to the king of king, you free room for the blessings of God to intrinsically be woven in the fabric of who you are. He's not after taxes. He's not after wealth. He's after our heart. So there's two practical effects. Number three, we'll close with this. Two practical effects of Jesus's kingdom coming to earth. It's the end of the story. Part where Jesus goes to the coffee cart and throws it over and takes the name tag table. And, I'm just kidding. He doesn't do any of that. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out these people selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. After that, listen to this, he taught daily in the temple, but the leading priests, these Pharisees and Sadducees, the teachers of the religious law and other leaders began planning how to kill him. But they could think of nothing because the people hung on every word that he said. There's so much here and I've got like four minutes, so I can't go into all of it. Let me just give you two things. One thing I know that that is a practical effect. Anytime the kingdom of God collides with earth is one letter A, it will stir everyone. It will stir everyone. Everybody will have something to say when Jesus comes to town. And you saw it in the video. You had three different reactions. You had the people who dismissed this as completely ridiculous. Who thought that this was nuts. Who thought that this guy was off his mind, off his rocker, that his followers were just these common annoyances to people, You always have people that whenever God's kingdom shows that whenever God's presence arises, whenever God really moves in a community or in a church, you're always going to have people who say this is ridiculous and they just dismiss it outright intellectually or experientially. You're always going to have it a couple, couple days later, like 60 days after the story, you have the upper room experience in Acts chapter two and the disciples start speaking in other languages as God gives them utterance. And you have the same three reactions that we're talking about here. You had those people who say they must be hammered already because it's nine in the morning. They just dismissed it outright intellectually. And you, you know, people like that. They look at the relationship you have with God. The fact that you go to church on a Sunday, you give money to a church, you volunteer, you read your Bible, you pray, they think it's lunacy. But you know what? Every time the real Jesus shows up, it stirs everybody. Because you've got to do something with this. You can't explain him away anymore. He is a reality. Jesus asks the people around him. Who do you say that I am? Most penetrating question there ever is. It's one you've got to wrestle with. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the only question you ever answer in life. You have to answer it. You have to do something with your answer. So it's going to stir everybody. Some people say it's ridiculous. Other people are curious. They haven't dismissed it outright. They haven't bought the whole way in, but they're going to investigate this a little more. Many of you might be here this morning, and that's you say, hey, that's where I'm at, Pastor. I'm just, I haven't bought the whole way into following Jesus. I wouldn't call myself a disciple, maybe not even a Christian, but I'm curious. I'm going to investigate. I'm going to follow this guy and I'm going to see, I'm going to hang on his every word. I'm going to find out what there is on the other side of this. That's those people in Acts chapter two, the Bible says, and there were some who, who were amazed and perplexed. They thought it was really cool, but they were confused. And they said, what does all this mean? And then you got the people who just receive it with joy. When the God's presence moves and his kingdom comes, they just receive it with joy. They say, blessed is he who comes and they welcome him with joy. I think, I think there's, a, there's a young lady over in our Echo Kids today, in E-Kids, her name's Isabella Aguilera. Isabella is somebody who receives God's presence with joy in her life. She couldn't be but maybe third grade. Three Sundays ago, her mom, Shauna, who's one of our E-Kids workers, woke up on Sunday morning with a terrible migraine headache, couldn't move, couldn't even get out of bed, couldn't open her eyes. Isabella had gotten herself ready for church, comes in to check on Shauna and says, Mom, you know, we're running late. We need to get going. And Shauna just says, Honey, we can't go today. I've got a migraine headache. Isabella crawls up on the bed, puts her hand on her mom's forehead and prays out loud a prayer of healing over her mom. She gets down out of the bed and says, Okay, I'll go wait out here. And Shauna told me that morning... She said, you know, when she took her hand off my head, it didn't go away instantly. But within five minutes, it was completely gone. She said, I got up on my feet. I got dressed. We're here at church today. I want to tell you, there's a young lady over there who's not just curious. She's not denouncing this outright. She says, there is a kingdom of God that's here on earth that I have access to. A kid. She's not overthought this. A kid, right? Let me ask you, do you live with that kind of boldness as an adult? Here's somebody who says the kingdom of Jesus has come and I'm not going to try and overthink it, underthink it. I'm going to get involved. It stirred her heart and her faith connected to Jesus's power healed her mom. Oh, what you and I could do if we were just free from fear and intimidation. With hearts of prayer and lived holy lives, what could what would God do? We'll talk about that in in two weeks, but we'll leave that there for today. The second thing I see last practical effect. As I close, it is a compliment. It is accomplished by a holy purging. It's interesting. This is not really the fun one to talk about much. Here's the reality. When Jesus wants to move, the first thing he always does is he purges the place he wants to move in. Did you hear what I said? It starts in the Old Testament. You want God's presence, that place has to be Clean. Why do you think the priests tied ropes around their ankles before they went into the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament? You know why? If they fell down dead, it was because of what? Sin in their heart that they didn't confess or repent for, offer a sacrifice for. And the reason they tied the rope is because if Bobby went in after him, and he dead too. And you have a lot of carnage in there. You know what the point is? You cannot drag sin into the presence of God. You can't do it. Well, that's changed when a new covenant has not changed. It has not changed. Let me tell you something. You want to see a genuine move of God like you've never seen before in your life. It doesn't come by reading a book, having a strategy session. Doesn't come by changing your wardrobe or volunteering for a new ministry. It comes by you purging your heart before God of anything in there that defiles or dishonors. He walked in to the temple and the first thing that he did was he purged it. He said, this is not the way that my house is supposed to be. And he looked in the eyes of the Pharisees and he said, you're hypocrites. And I know when most of us read the story, we put ourselves in different people's characters, but we need to put ourselves in the character of the Pharisee for a second. You understand? These were not bad, immoral people. These were the highest offices in their It wasn't a church, but the closest equivalent is the highest officers in the church. These are the leaders. These are the people who are teaching other people. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Honor God with your lives. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul and mind. That's what they were teaching. They were teaching people good things. Problem was, they had so much pride in their heart, they couldn't handle being corrected by someone they saw as spiritually inferior to them. And I will tell you, if one of the characteristics of a Pharisee is somebody who thinks that they are above spiritual reproach or correction by anybody, they think that they've got it that much together that they are somehow righteous, even in their unrighteousness. They somehow spiritually justify their sin. So when somebody comes along that doesn't have their title or their office and they look in their eyes and they say, something's inconsistent in your life, they say, I'm going to kill you and run you out of town. May that not be said of any of us. May we not be guilty of that same spirit. When God comes, when his kingdom comes, he comes to purge our hearts of sin. You know why? Not because he's angry at you. Because he wants you as close to him as he can get you. And you, you cannot come close to Jesus with sin in your heart. You cannot. You cannot. I just say, God, please come and purge my heart. Purge my worship. Purge my worship so that it's all about what you get out of it and not what I get out of it. Purge my worship so that I don't care when any other human being thinks about my worship but you. Purge my heart and my motives. Purge my good acts and my good behaviors. Purge those of us who serve in volunteerism. So it's not about people thinking that we're servants. and It's not about pleasing the pastor, doing a favor for him. So it's not even about the good warm fuzzies that I get from me. It's not about me. It's about you. Purge our acts of worship. Purge our offerings. Purge our hearts. Purge our relationships. If we want Jesus' kingdom to really come and have the full impact that it can, it does not come without a holy purging. I've heard a lot of people talk about, man, pastor, if we just had a move of God sweep through this town or this community, if we just had a move of God, let's plan a week of meetings. Let's Let's just take five hours a night and let's just plan a week. Let's just take a tithe of our time and pray. You know what? Every great move of God that I've studied in revival, every single one of them has one common thread. You know where it started? People getting on their face and repenting. That's where it started. Didn't start with a strategy meeting. Didn't start with a a new sermon series that came out from Andy Stanley that swept the nation. And we all ripped off and preached in our pulpits. It started with people who said, Jesus, that's not my temple anymore. This is your temple. And will you please come into the outer courts of my temple and turn over any table that doesn't belong there and remove it from me? It's not about you fixing Brian or you fixing Liz or fixing this person. Fix me. Let me be a temple that can inhabit your presence. And I will tell you, if you want to see the kingdom of God fully deployed in your life and all of its power, it begins with a purging of our hearts from sin. Let me pray over you. Even so now, Lord, please come. You are our king. You're not my king because I make you my king. You're my king because I acknowledge you as the king. We repent before you of our wicked ways. We repent before you of our spiritual pride that believes that we're above being corrected by anybody that we feel is beneath us. Instead, we adopt your mentality. We lower ourselves instead and think of ourselves as better than no one, but esteem other people better than we are. We repent of our spiritual indifference. We repent of being casual about your presence. We repent of being connoisseurs of preaching and worship and music and style. We repent of all those things. Please forgive us. Because in some ways we've lost our way. So today we return to you again. We pray like David said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless your holy name. This morning, our prayers aren't filled of all the things we need you to do for us as if you serve us, but our prayers are we make ourselves available to you. Please use us to your pleasure. We worship you. We are nothing without you. We're just dust. That came from the ground and we'll go back to it. We're just, we're not even a flash in the pan. We're less than that. Our life is not even it's it's not even a blink of the eye in the grand scheme of everything. We're nothing. But you make us something through a relationship with you when you put your stamp on us and we get to take your name. Please forgive us for our pride and our knowledge and our intellect thinking that we somehow have the market corner. Don't let us make the same mistake that the people who lined the streets made when they welcomed you to come in thinking you were somebody other than what, they, what you are. Thank you for coming to set sinners free. And even if you never change my, my difficult circumstances and our obstacles, help us to honor you and glorify you in the midst of us. Help us to bear the crosses you've given to us with dignity and with grace. Understanding that when we do that, you have welcomed us into a unique fraternity of people that you trust with the fellowship of your sufferings. And even if you never take the scars away or the cross away, may we bear those things gladly. And may you use them somehow for your glory. May you use my life as a testimony, not over the hurdles that I've overcome, but of the things that I might not ever jump over. Not just for the blessings, but for the trials. Please come. Please come and make your kingdom in me. And in us. Please come. Please come. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your King and as your Savior, and you know you need to start a relationship with him, you can pray a prayer just like this. You can just say right there, right in your seat, between you and God. You can whisper it to him right now. You can say something like this. Jesus, I repent of my sins. I change my heart about the way that I'm living. I have had an encounter with you this morning and I recognize that the way I've been living is not right. And I want to stop in mid-sentence and I want to invite you to come into my life and change me. I accept you as my Lord and as my Savior. I acknowledge you as my King. I renounce my former way of living and I now chase after you. I'm no longer indifferent. Now I am a disciple. I am a fully committed follower of you. Please come into my heart and transform me. In your name I pray.